0: Hello, and welcome to The Vasey View. This is my fortnightly dive into European tech. And uh, this is the start of the second series. When I set up The Vasey View, I wanted to look at European tech in the round. I wanted to visit countries and do a deep dive into what makes those countries' tech scene successful. I wanted to visit with companies and find out what was the secret of their European uh, success. And I wanted to talk to commentators who might give me an overview on European tech success, but underlying all of it, because I'm a politician or a former politician, is the nexus between public policy and tech. What do my deep dives into countries or companies or conversations with commentators tell public policy experts about how to approach technology policy? And in this week, uh, the first episode of the second series, we're going to look at Sweden. We're going to look at tech conferences, We're going to look at a European tech unicorn, but we're also going to slightly divert a bit to look at US tech policy under the Biden administration. And I'm delighted to say I'm able to cover all those topics because this week's guest is Natalia Brzezinski, who is the US head of strategy of Klarna, the Swedish tech fintech unicorn, but also so much more. Welcome, Natalia.
1: Thank Ed. What a lovely
0: introduction. <laughs> I'm blushing. <laughs> Thank you very much. I always get nervous doing my introduction. Anyway, <laughs> no, this is going to be a lot of fun. Natalia, I want to talk a bit about you and what you've been doing for the last few years, because we met at the Brilliant Minds conference, which you ran for several years. And that's because you were in Stockholm, where your husband was the US ambassador to Sweden. But you also had an important role there as a sort of tech consul general for links between the U.S. and Sweden on tech.
1: I like the term consul general. That's I'm going to use yeah, that going forward. The uh, <laughs> that was good. I don't know. I've been called tech ambassador. I don't know if that's on a higher or lower yes. level. So we'll have I to, we'll have to investigate a little bit. bit.
0: You're, you're okay, a you were the tech ambassador.
1: I'm, I'm right. <laughs> that's what I like to hear. Uh, no, I mean, I think that my story is both completely crazy and a dream and surreal and totally transformative of me and a lot of people around me during that time and also kind of indicative of President Obama and the era I came up in and the timing of it all. I landed in Sweden, you know, around this time in in November, actually, when they had had no sunlight for two months With a one and a half year old baby, I was in my shy mid twenties and had certainly never been in what I didn't even realize at the time would be such a public role. I came from a bit of a political background in the sense that my mother was a community organizer in the South side of Chicago as well. I always my parents are immigrants from Europe always spent a lot of time in Europe, both with family, but also I was a competitive ice skater, figure skater. So I I spoke Russian and Polish. I skated a lot in Eastern Europe as well and really kind of culturally always had one foot in each continent. And that very much informed my life and my choices. I studied at the EU in university and university and I double majored in journalism because I really felt that On the eve of the internet, and I was a, you know, I hate this term now, but digital native, a millennial, like I could really see that business and change and tech could all be happening, but there had to be an equal amount of storytelling and explanation and clarity. Otherwise, those things couldn't rise and become mass platforms as they are now. I lived in Denmark. I moved to Washington, D.C. to actually work for John Kerry as an intern in the Senate, which I completely hustled and bustled because I had no network, no connections. I essentially harassed him for two years and calling his office until someone dropped out and they called me and I dropped everything. I love Chicago and I moved to D.C. And this was already 2007, 2008 was my first job. I was in the press office and really drove from my lowly level. Um, I didn't respect protocol or hierarchy even then. So I remember harassing the senator and many top people that We needed to get on Twitter. We needed to communicate directly to people. At that time, obviously, President Obama, now President Obama was running for office. And it was one of the most formative periods, I think, in my life and in the country I live in and was born in the U.S. And so we know what happened. President Obama won the election, a historic election. My husband worked for him very early. Um, he actually is skewed working for Hillary Clinton, which was, you know, a scary thing to do at the time.
0: Smart move But, but hindsight. scary
1: thing to do. And he was told he would never work in DC again. <laughs> oh, wow. But he really believed in Obama and was early on. It was, you know, basically Susan Rice, Dennis McDonough, my husband, a few other top team members. And my husband really wanted to be an ambassador. His father was the national security advisor, obviously a strong White House and DC power player. And I think we very much wanted to pave our own road and very much wanted to go back to Europe, where we both come from. Um, he's also first generation immigrant, although a different generation than I am to, to the U.S. And yeah. we ended up in Sweden.
0: Well, I'm exhausted already. I mean, I can't believe...
1: <laughs> I'm 80 years old inside, I, Ed. That's I, hadn't like...
0: <laughs> taken in the, I hadn't taken in the ice skating as well as, you know, Denmark and all these amazing <laughs> yeah, qualifications. But about. let's, uh, we could spend the whole podcast on all of that but let's let's switch to sweden because what i really yes. want to do is you know you were you were in sweden for several years and you were the tech ambassador by the way i, I always start every podcast with a faux pas so i sorry i called you the tech consul general you were it, the it tech humanizes ambassador. you don't worry <laughs> you were the tech ambassador <laughs> sweden is you know it's a it's a kind of standout country when it comes to tech because as well as Klarna, which we're going to talk about mm. you've got skype you've got spotify you've got mojang you've got king uh, which started in uh, Stockholm, you've got more, the, the Swedish claim, more unicorns per capita than anywhere outside of Silicon Valley. So in the, in your time back in Sweden, as it were, what did you kind of pick up in terms of what is this, why are the Swedes so good at tech?
1: Absolutely. I mean, and I think part of the reason I told you that whole journey is because when I landed in Stockholm as a young working mother, as someone that grew up very poor, with no health insurance, with nothing, I think that added to the context of me just having very much eyes wide open in Stockholm. And I also had, as as, as we kind of joke a bit, this tech ambassador role, but I hearken back to a really historic White House because I had an official contract from Secretary Hillary Clinton- signed up and down the White House counsel's office and everywhere beyond to work in an official capacity as a co-ambassador alongside my husband, focusing on tech. That had never happened before. Hasn't happened since. Not sure if it will happen again. Not that I didn't do a good job. but That's why
0: I couldn't get my head it. Right. I had no idea. That's amazing. No,
1: but it, it was actually true. And I, I say this and you would, you will understand this. And I think this will be a theme throughout this interview, which is Just the aspect of generational change. I wouldn't have been able to do what I did if Sweden wasn't in this moment of immense growth. I mean, when I got there, Spotify had not even, I think it barely may have opened its first office in New York. It had not expanded to the US. Mojang had not sold. I visited Minecraft and the two founders I'm still extremely close to and I sit on boards with. When they were 25 employees in a tiny office in Stockholm, I met Sebastian way before he entered the US market when he was, you know, Klarna was a few hundred people in Stockholm and I couldn't even understand what it was.
0: Sebastian being the founder of Klarna, yeah.
1: My wonderful boss. And so part of that was that timing. Also, I was young. These founders were my age. They were just starting to have children. I mean, we, we were really coming of age together in this moment of great change. And I was sitting on this immense platform, which was the modern embassy in the time of social media. You know, Long gone are the days where no one knew what happened inside those walls, nor did they think it's just someone with gray hair giving out visas. You know, you could really use this platform. You don't make laws or policy, but you can certainly influence it. And you can certainly, by using the power to convene, truly affect real change. And I do believe that, that we did that. And a lot of that was also back to the generational change, the cultural change concept, President Obama put a lot of female ambassadors, gay ambassadors around the world, non donors. My husband and I didn't donate a penny. We didn't buy an embassy. We really came in with a skill set that they focused on, which was modernizing diplomacy, being a young couple that's bringing in genera- new generational values. And the Foreign Service, I couldn't have done what I did if the State Department, the Foreign Service officers in Stockholm, who were Interestingly, the ones that were under 40, there were a lot of gay senior diplomats, a lot of female diplomats all out to support me. Basically, I recall a conversation talking to the White House counsel's office out of Stockholm, sitting around a table with not my husband was not there because it was a conflict, around the table with all the senior Foreign Service officers at the US Embassy at that time. And one of them, Jeff Anderson, who I will love forever, saying basically, we couldn't do the things we do without natalia she is integral to the mission here i've never experienced something like this before but she is integral we support her we'll stand with her and i could cry i mean that was you know, that had never happened to me in my life you know i everything i've ever done i've done on my own i didn't have that kind of support so i'll recall that fondly and always but it was it was a team effort and it was you know a lot of outsiders insider outsiders as i like to coin it you know People that weren't always having a voice and franchised, like supporting me and me in turn supporting them.
0: Yeah, no, I hadn't really, uh, I hadn't expected to be kind of talking about digital di- diplomacy, because that is something I am interested in. You're quite right. You were there at the kind of um, the pioneer. The, big, the beginning, the, the awakening. Of, um, yes. Because now, obviously, it's it's completely normal to... See ambassadors tweeting, and some ambassadors and (laughs) presidents. Yeah, well, certainly from the UK perspective, you know, some ambassadors become, you know, kind of national figures in the countries in which they are working because they're good at uh, tweeting. They kind of they get a a social following. But you were the first to be doing it in Sweden, and also we've tried experiments in the UK. We had the Israel UK Tech Hub, for example. So where you kind of bring an, an element of flexibility to the kind of, as you were saying, the, the slightly formal way of doing embassies and diplomacy was changing and you were there making it happen.
1: Absolutely. And I think we were, I mean, as I'm sure, you know, my dear friend and probably yours, Matthew Barzin, who was the U.S. ambassador yes. to and later went to the U.K. I love Matt and Brooke. They gave me so much great advice. Matt was the first to... The, literally the first ambassador to use Twitter in any embassy in the world.
0: I think Matt's, uh, Matt's more memorable for his parties. He, he did, he did. Uh, <laughs> there's there an element of old school diplomacy of fantastic parties.
1: I didn't have Ed Sheeran in my country, so let me just <laughs> put that out there. But I, went, I went to, he that, I went to the Ed
0: Sheeran. I went to the Ed Sheeran concert. I'm
1: still, I'm still pissed off about me mis- missing that, but we were busy. Um, but uh, no, but I, I mean, he he really said, go ahead and push the envelope. And I then brought in, you know, I did Instagram. I had a podcast. We were even approached to do a reality show. We were the first couple approached. We weren't able to do. I mean, at that time, they were like, whoa, whoa. The stage where I was like, whoa, this is enough. Like we've allowed them to be vocal enough. However, I will say we pushed the torch. And then my dear friend Rufus Gifford in Denmark, had a reality show thereafter that I think went out to Netflix. So I feel that, you know, my job was done there. But part of it was, yes, like I I don't see it as, you know, tweeting or sharing or I saw it as this is what an embassy can do. Bring together the founders of Minecraft and U.S. senators to create policies and programs that they can use in Africa with the U.N., on city planning and schools. That's how I thought about it. And then share that story to also challenge other leaders and policymakers and ambassadors to do more. Um, so I think I came at it like having the background I had, not being donors, like I saw this as the biggest responsibility of my life. I could not freaking believe that I was living in a mansion on the water. I had security, I had vehicles driving me around, I had Staff in my home, lots of them empowering me to do things. You know, I mean, I couldn't not. I mean, I think that's the hardworking Eastern European immigrant in me, but there is no way in hell I was going to sit there and not do my best to create change. And it also wasn't just involving celebrities and leaders. And it was, a, you know, a piece of advice my mom sent me off with. And my parents, I think. God bless them, but to this day, don't even really know what I do now, what I did then. The yeah. concept of an embassy is not part of their daily life or understanding. But my mom did say, you know, in good form, don't let this get to your head. You better help other immigrants and other women. <laughs> and I, I really took that with me. So every every gathering we had, anything we did, I made sure there were young people, women. I literally took over every guest list to the chagrin of a lot of our protocol people in the embassy and just added in. And when I didn't know enough women, I would spend all night researching them and reach out to them all like every CEO, every fund, every investment banker, I'd invite them to the embassy and they would come, you know, because it was probably out of curiosity. And then I got to know more people and then I brought them into what we were doing because I really believe if you have a seat at the table and you give women or immigrant women a seat at the table, things will happen, you know, and that's all they need sometimes is that, oppor- that one opportunity. That's all I needed.
0: I want to talk to you later about uh, women entrepreneurs in particular. But mm. I just wondered, I mean, in terms of what you learned when you sat with the founders of these great companies in Stockholm, I mean, people talk about Swedish companies, you know, every startup has a global mindset because Sweden's never going to be a big enough market. People talk about this concept yeah. of trust in Sweden, that there's an element of tr- there's trust in the government, but that translates to yes. employers trusting their employees. So people have sort of greater autonomy to kind of get on with things. And I think Sebastian even talks about getting free Co- personal computers. computers in the 1990s. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there a kind of distillation of 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 what makes Swedish tech successful that you kind of picked up during your time there?
1: Exactly what you just said, I would distill in this manner: Swedes innovate and create because they can. when I told my mom I wanted to be an entrepreneur when I was eleven, she said, "You're so stupid. What will you do about health insurance?" <laughs> you
0: know yeah.
1: In America, like, it's seen, you know, as wild, not anymore, but it has been for a long time, simply because of the lack of support. Like, I always feel that we innovate, and coming from immigrant parents who worked and like, were very entrepreneurial on the side with two or three different companies, it was an entrepreneurship out of hysteria, out of fear, out of struggle, out of like, trying to make it to keep your head above water, versus an entrepreneurship Based in kind of security, safety, calm, confidence, you know, if I fail in Sweden, I'm not going to go through my grandmother's pension funds and savings. I'm not going to end up on the street. I'm not going to be in massive debt. I can fail and try again. And so I think there's that concept of just like safety and security and completely different type of incentives and drivers for entrepreneurs. And in parallel, With that type of system and infrastructure, I believe that the Swedes really, with those policies of giving, you know, every Swede a PC, which benefited (laughs) Danielek, you know, Sebastian Trzmitowski, the Minecraft guys, of course, but it also benefits women. The Swedes really give every tool they can to empower every single member of the population to be creative and to contribute with the parental leave, with the daycare. My daughter went to daycare, just a simple daycare next to our home in Sweden, you know, where they mm-hmm. start at age one, it really allows all creative people with great ideas to contribute. And as an American coming to Sweden and I I, I gave you my whole life background. sorry, but I gave <laughs> that, that to you just weird. because I think I think it primed me to be again extremely open and receptive to this Swedish ecosystem and how completely polar opposite was than the American one actually absolutely totally like these are two very entrepreneurial ecosystems obviously silicon valley in the us and sweden but sweden doesn't have the diver- doesn't have the whole world coming to it to create we have that advantage is it massive this was like 8 million people when i landed there there was not even a one single incubator there
0: i think that is uh is such a fascinating insight because of course the cliche is that the U.S. is the entrepreneurial country, and it's partly entrepreneurial because if you don't get off your backside, to coin a phrase, yeah, uh,
1: you're done. Make it,
0: make it for yourself. You know, no one's going to look after you, and that's meant to be a driver. And the European model, which Sweden is probably the,
1: the forefront, yeah,
0: is seen as a kind of dead weight on the state, costing money in high taxes. But you've just kind of brilliantly, I think flipped it around and said people can get on with taking risks if they know that the state has their back. I think that's a fascinating way, bizarrely, of promoting welfare policy.
1: Truly. And I think it also promotes diversity, inclusion, women, like all of those things we talk about. I mean, landing in a country. And I, I left my job in Kerry's office when my husband was kind of part of the Obama stuff. I had, you know, two month old colicky baby. There's no way I could have worked. I had no parental support. We didn't have the resources, you know, to really have nannies and things like that. And so I landed in Sweden in this. And I was so young. and I was really thinking my life is over. I'm just going to be a political wife. That's all I can do. I can't be a good mom and do both. And I was kind of surrounded by these both super cool fit, wearing red leather jacket, CEO, women everywhere. I'm like, this is heaven. (laughs) I don't don't think I would have the same amount of strength. I mean, I was raised by, my mother was a breadwinner. My grandmother was a breadwinner. So I knew that women could kick ass and lead, but they really struggled. Like really, their health, I mean, they really worked hard. And that wasn't the same type of feeling in Sweden because they, receive so much support. And I think the trust aspect is also coming from fraudulent Chicago, You know, where every governor goes to jail, going to a country <laughs> where, you know, going to a country where Swedes have been able to pass. They were one of the first countries to pass women's vote and to pass parentally. They were they, they have passed the most progressive climate laws because no matter what. And even today, it's not as good. But At the end of the day, the average Swede at all levels of socioeconomic status believes that their government is not trying to like F them over, excuse my language, is not Mm -hmm. trying to throw them in the hole, is not going to cheat them. They actually believe they're passing things that they believe are going to help the the society. That is mind blowing as an American. (laughs) That's not how we feel. And and I also think that trust is why that trust also goes to. To, on the consumer side, consumers trust tech leaders in Sweden. They trust them enough to try their products. That's why Spotify, I mean, Spotify is in a different category, but I think that's why Klarna was able to work. People tried it. You know, they trusted it, like in a way that, you know, I come from family that still puts money under the bed in cash. You know, we don't trust our financial services, our banks in that kind of way. And I think... That's why Swedes, you know, you always hear Swedes are such early adopters. I think it's because of that fundamental, at the end of the day, people try new things because they trust that those things won't hurt them. That's also very rare.
0: That is really interesting. Yeah. Now, I always say that um, one of the successes behind uh, the UK tech scene is the kind of, you forget about the consumer. If the consumer exactly. is prepared to kind of lean in and try, Uh, new stuff, then that is very helpful. So we've touched a bit on digital embassies, we've touched on uh, what makes Swedish society tick, and you've completely revolutionised government and economic theory. I want to focus on something that I genuinely think we do better than the US, which is back to your day job now as Mm. the head of strategy for Klarna in the US. So obviously, most people listening to this will know exactly what uh, Klarna is, but Klarna is, as we speak, uh, Europe's most valuable fintech unicorn. Uh, It was founded in 2005. It's valued around $11 billion now. It's expected to IPO this year, and essentially it provides software to retailers to allow them to allow their customers to pay for products in installments. Klarna takes on the credit risk You charge the retailers a small fee for that, for the customers that use its services. And the customer doesn't pay uh, exorbitant interest in order to pay in installments for goods that they want. So that's a quick kind of elevator pitch about what Klarna does. And I'm sure you'll fill in uh, the gaps. But uh, in essence, I mean, I obviously want to talk about uh, the secret of Klarna's success. But as you're the head of US strategy, one of the things kind of to carry on some of the theme of what we talk about is I'm always struck when I go to the US how unbelievably backward, just in terms of (laughs) of consumer services, the financial, the consumer financial services industry is in in the US. I mean, I haven't used cash, probably for more than a year, except on the very rare occasions. I can't remember when I last wrote a check. And I can get a lot of things online, uh, you know, do transactions online with digital documents and so on. The US isn't like that. So Klarna is, encapsulates to a certain extent, a European advantage, if you like, in terms of financial services. Is that fair?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I I chuckle here as you say that because (laughs) my husband lives by his checkbook, pays (laughs) tons of things by check, as do my parents. I am occasionally forced to because a lot of service providers in the US still want check, check or cash, and they accept it. And cash is king, I believe, still. And in any periods of uncertainty, like COVID, there's always this moment of oh, we need to hold on to, ca- to cash, we need to yeah. store cash, and like you know, there's there's a complete hysteria. I think it's a generational paranoia around that. My husband, my parents, i mean, these are these are people that are not in the same generation as I am—and it's also interesting because I think it's so fun. I mean, back the reason I mentioned the fact that I lived in Copenhagen, Denmark, and this was in two thousand and five, mm. two thousand and six is that I and my cohort of American students arrived in Denmark with big smiles and loads of Amexes and visas and credit cards. And then we had a disasters because no one accepted everything was debit. Yeah. All play, everything in Copenhagen debit, debit, debit. Where's your debit card? What's your pin code? Where's your, like what? And so, I mean, I remember having that in my, in my mindset and then living in Sweden, I never used cash. You know, and now when you go to Stockholm, you cannot, there are places that do not accept cash versus yeah. in the U.S. There are places that do not accept a card. <laughs>
0: like it's, yeah,
1: it's truly interesting. And I think it's back to this trust element again. And I think it's also just I, I'm not sure we I, and I think it's a lack of trust in banks and institutions and, and a fear to try new things. And the fact that we are in this massive breach of social inequality where like people like me and not, that's not based on a wealth basis, but I've had a wealth in terms of experiences and living abroad and education. I do everything yeah. online and that's my, that's my, that's my business. And I love transformation and I love change. And I think that's a very much a generational aspect of, of being a digital native or not. But if you ask me, are you behind? Absolutely. But if you ask me if change is coming and it's, you know, COVID aside, change was already coming generationally. And I think change was already coming as we have more working women, working families where it's, you know, they there's an ease, obviously, of doing things online. That's why that's why it works. That's why digitalization is important. It's more efficient. It's easier. Um, so I see these trends happening, but it's obviously 25 years behind, you know, I would say Sweden.
0: Yeah. And... and- are you finding the U.S. market receptive to Klarna?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I think, again, of course, this year has has really driven that. However, I mean, we gained one million customers in two weeks around Black Friday and Thanksgiving. You know, people are, I think it's not just the fact that obviously we're in a pandemic, but I also think it's just the fact that there's been an incremental movement towards doing things online as people get busier and life is hard and people are working several jobs. And I think there's just also generational change around the millennials are getting older. Maybe they're, they're not getting married. They're not doing the traditional kind of household and they're more leaning into, to to new types of financial services. And I think Mm -hmm. I have really rarely gotten any kind of negative feedback. People are really keen, interested, Sebastian had a the founder of Klarna, the CEO had a thesis, you know, before COVID, that within the next eighteen months, every single merchant in the U.S. will have a buy now, pay later solution. And you know, several months later, and with COVID, we're kind of seeing that like gangbusters. You know, there is no company, no retailer that is not interested and in engaging in some way, shape, or form around that.
0: And um, and what do you think made Klarna? kind of successful? In, in What was the secret sauce? You know, when, when you kind of strip it down, you know, buy now, pay later, it's, it's a fairly straightforward idea. But like all great ideas, it's only straightforward once it's been put forward.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: But um, why has Klarna taken off in a, in a way, say, I don't know, some other big financial services company couldn't have seen this coming and stolen your lunch?
1: I mean, I think there are several things. One of them is what we've spent a lot of this conversation talking about. They are authentically and organically rooted in this background for 15, 20. Klarna's 15 years old. Sweden yeah. has been engaging in this type of e-commerce for 20, 25, 30 years. You know, it's, it's just very forward and they have the goods. You know, it's real. It's there. They've seen it work. In Germany, Klarna is bigger than PayPal. We're a regulated bank in Europe. People use Klarna like Apple Pay in Sweden, and so we we know that people will adopt. We know that it works. We've worked out the kinks. So when coming into the U.S. market, I'm seeing also because of the generational transformation and change, people my age and under and and even older are using it as a budgeting tool, a finance tool you know, there's often this critique that, you know, all of these companies are putting young people in debt. That's actually completely the opposite. Our consumers are educated. They've been able to discover this Swedish company called Klarna, which even its name is not as obvious to what it is. They've been able to study it. They have a debit card. 70% of millennials have a debit card and no credit card. That says to me that they're not putting themselves into debt and shopping above their means because they're just using what they have. That's already showcasing and underscoring a savvy, realistic, pragmatic consumer. You know, I mean, I use Klarna. I think it's a again, it's a budgeting tool. It's an experimental tool. And I think the reason why we've really penetrated now is it's not just a payment tool. You know, I don't have a, a payments background I like to do things, be part of things around change and transformation. And that's what Klarna is. And they've done it early. And here, we're also a really cool values-driven brand and an ecosystem. I mean, we have 90 million users of our app. When I think of the app, and I don't know if you've used it, it's almost like you know a, a mixture, an amalgamation of Pinterest, your Bank of America, Instagram, discovery, makeup tutorials. Like the marketing side has been incredibly clever out of Stockholm to engage with iconic cultural figures in the U.S. that haven't been overexploited. For example, you know, Klarna was the first company to work with RuPaul's Drag Queens, the drag queens and RuPaul's show. most famous show in America next to national football. No yeah. one had worked with them. I wonder why puritanical in, instincts in the U.S., but, you know, it was incredible. And it also showed what we stand for in a nuanced and interesting way. Every campaign we've done has been that Lady Gaga women's empowerment, like the coolest campaign around. You know, she proposed to herself um, and it really took off. The Snoop Dogg.
0: And you just you've appointed your first fashion Snoop Dogg yeah, tell us about Snoop Dogg. Sorry. Oh yeah,
1: I mean, I mean I mustn't interrupt know.
0: The, <laughs> mustn't interrupt the Snoop Dogg anecdote.
1: No, no, how could you? <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna send him over there. Um, no, but I mean at that time, even and I've worked in music, obviously with with along with brilliant minds, and those times like tech people didn't really have the respect towards music artists as real entrepreneurs, which I've always thought they are. Yes. They're, they're leading their own business. People didn't think that way. And Snoop Dogg is totally a visionary, but really was, we were one of the first companies to take him on. He wasn't just a one of those stupid campaigns that I think, you know, that type of marketing is so over. He's a shareholder. <laughs> you know, he loves Clona. He's engaged in our gaming campaigns. We did a really cool one a few months ago. So I'm telling all these stories because the way we work with creatives like a Snoop Dogg, the, the way we communicate in the U.S. and all over the world is, again, I think, leading with these Swedish edgy values around diversity, openness, inclusion, and also just being a little bit different. And I think that is really attractive to a lot of young people, people of all ages in America, especially now when we've had the worst year in our in my lifetime and in our life, collective lifetimes, attacking diversity, attacking inclusion, attacking being different attacking all those things that a lot of people hold dear in the U.S. And frankly, that's what we're built on is being different. Um, That's what Americans are. And so I think that it's amazing that a Swedish company has recognized and leveraged that. But it's also not because sometimes it takes an outsider's view to see what's special about a market. And I think they've done that really well.
0: But I also think it kind of also weirdly echoes what we started talking about, which is your kind of digital embassy, you know, you take a it truly. You know, I was saying in a sort of slightly boring way, you know, oh, it's a fine, it's a fine <laughs> pay later company, you know, what's, I had the, to, uh... <laughs> what's the big idea? Why did somebody else do it? But actually, what you said is they kind of reimagined the relationship between exactly their, the company and the customer to say we can do, you know, we're a platform on which you transact, but we can do so much more for you. Why don't people feel this way? That's fascinating.
1: And and I love that as well. And I think that's very much been the part like a foundational part of who I am as a professional and things I've done, whether it's in the embassy or Brilliant Minds. And now what happens at the intersect of tech, fashion, politics, business? Yeah. What happens at the intersect of shopping, banking, fashion, creativity, art? Like, I think that's what Klarna is. And that's where the magic happens. You know, magic and change happens in between, like in between these spaces and valleys, like as we all connect. And that's what I love about what Klarna is doing and the vision of the company that it's really like we are this kind of amalgamation of a shopping experience, but an artistic experience yeah, in a way, exactly. a financial experience, a generational experience. I think, you know, if we continue to do our jobs well, which we will, Klarna will have driven and put a dent in pop culture in the U.S. at some point. And I love that. And, I, and that I've and i been amazing. part of, you know, and so has Spotify. Again, like Swedish companies, non-American companies that have actually driven U.S. culture in interesting ways.
0: Well, i got to say, I was not expecting the conversation to <laughs> go in this direction. I think it's absolutely fascinating. I can now understand why Mike Moritz uh, wanted to be chairman of... Um, Klana, that's uh, brilliant.
1: And we're so happy about that.
0: But I just wanted to, because we've talked a lot and we could talk for hours more, but I want to cover one more topic. So I'm going to kind of change gears, even though I want to carry on talking about Klaner and US culture, which I think is absolutely fascinating. But I want to talk about tech and public policy, because obviously uh, you talked about the intersection of tech and politics and fashion. And it's probably because you knew I was the minister for fashion in the United Kingdom for six long years,
1: I know everything, Ed. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but really, I wanted to slightly segue back to the US proper because you had President Obama to Brilliant Minds, you had John Kerry and you worked for John Kerry. I'm so uh, happy, yes. Not to put too fine a point on it, you, you know quite a lot of people, I think, who are going to be influential <laughs> in the new administration. <laughs> And obviously there's a big, big debate uh, going on. And it's interesting uh, what you said earlier. I was also fascinated by what you said about the kind of Swedish consumer trusting tech founders and wanting to try their products. So what we have in the US, at least from my perspective in the UK, is you have the tech clash, you have these huge tech companies, Facebook, Mm -hmm. etc., and the calls to break them up. You have concerns obviously around COVID and indeed some people who tweet about disinformation and how these platforms become, super spreaders of disinformation Uh, It's a really unfair question, but kind of (laughs) how would you sum up kind of what you think the Biden administration's approach to tech is? Because again, there's an interesting nuance, which is, you know, there's an element of a critique, a criticism, if you like, of the administration that it's actually embracing too many people. The tech lash has gone so far that the criticism is now that there are too many people from the tech world going into the administration. Mm. So there's a kind of smorgasbord of things. And I'm unfairly asking you to, to make sense of it, to say, if you were advising a tech company now, what would you be saying the Biden administration would be, would be thinking about?
1: Well, this is a very expansive question. So I will do my best to give my perspective and not get myself into any kind of trouble. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: as a politician, you know that. So <laughs> I have to you have to remind me to end with a Joe Biden story because I have a fantastic one. But just to give a quick reply to this. I mean, I'm always this like I'm always going to be this girl from the south side, you know, kind of surreal in the fact that when Obama won and we went abroad, I was a baby. Now I see people that I know and admire who have supported me and also like the super progressive things I want to do and other people wanted to do rising into positions like national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, like Tony Blinken, secretary of state. These are some of truly the smartest people in America, the most capable people, the most open minded people, people that really understand Europe. You know, Tony speaks fluent French, people that really understand working couples, Um, our new secretary, hopefully soon to be secretary of state Blinken's wife, Evan Ryan, Amazing woman who has been so supportive and who worked alongside him in several White Houses and for John Kerry, working couples, tons of female leaders. Um, I don't think it was talk. And it won't be talk. I know that that they will there will be immense diversity, especially when it comes to women and people of color. We're seeing that already now with an all female White House communications team. But even in the oh, yeah. fact that symbolically and I don't think you if many, many Americans might not notice this because they don't come from D.C., obviously. But the fact that uh, President-elect Biden allowed Kamala Harris to come out first and to address the nation first and then to stand next to him as he addressed the nation when he accepted the nomination, is unheard of. I mean, if you go past any other president, that that has not happened. It shows a true partnership between them. It shows him really um empowering her. And I think we're going to have one of the most exciting next generation administrations that might happen in my lifetime. And a lot of these people did come from the Obama world early on, where they really believed, like I do, in the values and possibility of tech. And when I talk about the values of tech, openness, transparency, engagement, community, like the things that we all fell in love with and the things that are the redeeming values still today as we hang on for dear life, they know that intrinsically, yet they're seasoned now. And I think it's going to be a really interesting group of people that will create a lot of change. And I think we'll see a really, you say people coming from Silicon Valley are coming back in. I mean, I think- that's fair to a point, but I think we'll see a a real wonderful and professional and efficient balance between protecting innovation and creativity, but also protecting the consumer um, and protecting the citizen and still maintaining the values of openness and freedom of speech and freedom. So I think, I think that I couldn't think of better people to do that um, than the group coming in right now. And I'm really excited about it. And When it comes to President-elect Biden, you know, I tried to save this story for the end, but I have carried his words and I could not have done what I've done for the last, you know, 11 years now, scarily, without an amazing, epic moment in his office in the White House when he was vice president and my husband and I were, you know, one week off from heading to Sweden. Um, he yeah. invited us over. He really loves Europe. He really believes in the transatlantic relationship. So I think that's important to note. And he came in and, you know, I had not met him before. And he kind of like gave my husband in a wave. And then he opened his arms. And said, Natalia like, gave me a big hug. And he looked me right in the eyes and said, you do not know how important your role will be. I have believed in the spouses and partners of diplomats my entire career. I have actually introduced legislation in the U.S. Senate as a senator four times to get women and partners paid because, you know, they're not paid. They're paid, I think, in your country. No, they're not. Because you can't really work. And your role, he said, you know, my wife doesn't have to do anything if she doesn't want to. A senator's wife doesn't have to do anything. An ambassador's wife has to do a lot. And is looked at as a symbol and is watched and is the mother figure for the embassy, is a comfort, is an influencer. And I was kind of flabbergasted because, you know, I had thought to myself, I'm going to go over there and be really active, you know, whether it kills me. And if no one likes it, I don't care. But to have that kind of support, I mean, it was eye open. I carried it with me for, for the rest of my you know, life until now. He was really saying, be bold and use your platform for change. I'm behind you. Um, And I said that when I got there at a big event and a lot of people in the embassy looked at me like, you know, I looked really young then, too. So they're probably like, who the hell is this 12 year old? And what is she talking about? You know? Yeah, yeah. But it was incredible. And I've said that to him since a lot due to a lot of our work and the fact that we had President Obama visit. There's never been a U.S. president come to Sweden. He visited us in 2012, mainly because of everything we've talked about in this podcast and his belief in that. And because he loved it so much, there was a White House Nordic state dinner and visit. Again, one that that has never happened before. There's never been a Nordic state dinner. And I told Vice President Biden then like how much effect he had on me. And like he had a tear in his eye. You know, he's just. He really believes in the things he's saying. He really believes in empowering people. And I think that's the kind of leader we need right now. Um, It's not about him. It's not about his ego. He really likes to create and empower teams. And I, I believe that that will create the change we need now.
0: God, that was so good. That was brilliant. A uh, wonderful insights into the Biden administration. You didn't answer the question, which is obviously the right thing to do when politics. You didn't, you didn't actually say been, what the tech policy was, well. but I tell you the insight and the colour.
1: But listen, you know this. It's about um, <laughs> politics is about emotions and personal feelings at yeah. the end of the day. And no, I think fascinating. that's more valuable because you'll know the values and nature of these people and what they care about. And that's what But I think do.
0: your point about the what what really resonated with me is your point about the what originally excited people about tech still kind mm-hmm. of informing the administration's approach I think is a real insight which I think people should take away from this podcast. Listen, we've covered digital embassies, we've covered Swedish trust We've covered U.S. fintech backwardness. We've covered Klarna, a fintech company influencing U.S. pop culture, and you've given us some wonderful insights into the on incoming Biden administration. And the only the only downside is that anyone listening to this podcast is now going to bombard you and ask you to give them. Uh, insights into the Biden administration because you're worth their weight in gold. So I'm sorry to land that on you. Natalia, thank you for spending so much time. You're in Chicago. So it's early in the morning for you. But I know that you've already done about a million things beforehand, having done a million things before you ended up in Stockholm.
1: I was up at 4.45, my friend. (laughs) This is nothing.
0: (laughs) I get up at 4.45 as well. But my excuse is that I'm a man in late middle age i think that's what happened
1: <laughs> really oh, then
0: you i only
1: have sleep. good things to look forward to
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much thank You've you so brilliant. much
1: i can't wait to come visit you in london soon that's going to be something to look forward
0: to thanks for listening to this episode of the vasey view a production of kindred media